Mary Gillespie was a bus driver for the Westfall School District in the small town of Circleville, Ohio. She was, by all accounts, a rather unassuming woman. She was a mother and married to her husband, Ron Gillespie. On the surface, the Gillespie family was like any other. But, as it turns out, Mary had a secret. Allegedly, anyway. She was having an affair with the Westfall School District superintendent, a man by the name of Gordon Massey. And in December of 1976, this affair would become a catalyst that would thrust the Gillespie family into the midst of a strange, twisted mystery that would change their lives forever, and create a mark on their town that would define Circleville for many years to come. That December, Mary Gillespie received a bizarre letter in the mail. Postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, but with no return address, it was written in bizarre, capitalized block letters. The letter read, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Simply Strange, episode 25. I'm PJ, and I am thrilled that you could join me today. Thanks for stopping by. I'm going to carry on with this episode in just a moment, but before I do that, I do have a little bit of news that I want to share with everyone. Two things, actually. First, Simply Strange has merch now. We've got shirts and mugs and not to overhype things, but they've got Mothman on them and the design came out pretty awesome. So I'm pretty excited about it. You can check those out at simplystrangepodcast.com slash merch. So do that if you want. And second, moving forward, I am going to be slowing down the release schedule of Simply Strange a little bit. I've taken on some new responsibilities over the last few months, some other projects that I'm working on that are taking up a lot of my time. Plus, you know, I have one of those full-time job things that people have to have. So the 30 hours or so per week that it takes me to make this show are just getting to the point where they're really hard to find and I'm struggling to keep up. I want to make sure that the show is good and that I'm not just rushing through it to get it done. So for the foreseeable future, I am going to be reducing Simply Strange to one episode per month released on the last Wednesday of every month. I don't plan on this necessarily being a permanent change, but I don't know what kind of time frame we're talking about exactly. I'm hoping that I'll eventually be able to reallocate my time and get back to releasing episodes every other week. But for the foreseeable future, I've got to work with what I've got. So, yeah, that's my news. We've got merch and new episodes are going to be released on the last Wednesday of every month. 
And now that that's out of the way, this is the story of the Circleville Letters. Circleville, Ohio, is a cozy little town about 25 miles south of Columbus. It's safe and quiet, with about 13,000 residents, and is often described as the type of place where people can leave their doors unlocked overnight without any worry of dangerous repercussions. It's a town that is best known for its annual Circleville Pumpkin Show, a four-day pumpkin-themed festival that can net an attendance that tops 400,000 people. However, beginning in December of 1976, when Mary Gillespie received her strange, anonymous letter, cozy, quiet Circleville suddenly found itself thrust into the middle of a disturbing and bizarre mystery that would captivate audiences across the nation. Following the first letter, Mary Gillespie kept quiet, but she was worried. The letter, in no uncertain terms, told her a number of things. Whoever wrote it, knew things that they shouldn't have. They knew who she was, they knew who her family was, and they knew about her affair. An affair that, obviously, no one should have known about. She was being watched, and it would seem that if she did not comply with the writer's demands, that there would be negative consequences. The startling letters continued to find their way to Mary, growing more insistent, more threatening with each new iteration. In one, the writer stated that if Mary did not inform the school board of her affair with Gordon Massey, a bullet would be put in her little girl's head. Another read, This is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. How is your little girl? Will she grow up to be like you? But all the while, Mary continued to keep silent resolving to carry on with her life, concealing the letters from those around her, and resorting to constantly looking over her shoulder, always searching for her mysterious antagonist. The writer, however, would not let her carry on this way for very long, with it becoming abundantly clear that Mary had no intention of coming clean. Mysterious letters soon began to arrive at the Gillespie home, instead addressed to her husband, Ron and these letters were pretty straightforward. The strange blocky lettering informed Ron that if he did not put an end to the affair, he would die. We must inform you that your wife is having an affair with Mr. Massey, they read. She has chased him until he caught her. Eliminate them both before they eliminate you. Remember, we know where you work and know your red and white truck. No one can help you. Think of your children and future. Notify the school board. Again, your life is in danger. Now, this message was obviously pretty confusing to Ron, who unsurprisingly was completely unaware that there was an affair at all. And he also had no knowledge of the string of similarly startling letters that had been making their way to his wife. Ron confronted Mary regarding the letter, 
and her alleged affair, and she denied it, claiming that she believed the letter to be some form of cruel joke, and assuring Ron that there was no affair. So the two carried on as best as they could, but before too long, they received another letter that, again, shattered their hopeless attempts at escaping the Circleville letter writer. Gillespie, the letter read in its signature block letters, You have had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBS, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. But despite these threats, the Gillespies continued to remain silent. Now, the Gillespie family were not the only ones receiving these letters. As it turns out, there were plenty of secrets hidden away by the people of Circleville, and some of them were pretty dark. Yet somehow, the Circleville letter writer knew them all. Letters were sent to a Dr. Carroll, the county coroner, accusing him of molesting children. Letters were sent to a local judge, accusing him of the murder of a pregnant schoolteacher, a woman named Vicki Koch. A murder that, to this day, remains unsolved. Hundreds and eventually thousands of the same anonymous, blocky-lettered letters were sent all across Circleville, inciting fear and paranoia all over town, that at any given moment, any given person might be being watched by the mysterious letter writer. Some reports even state that many of the letters were poisoned with arsenic. As the letters continued to stream in, the Gillespie's concern grew, and they finally opened up to their family about their predicament, telling three people about the threatening letters. Ron's sister, her husband, Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister. And, as it turns out, Paul actually had an idea as to who might be responsible for the letters. Some of the letters had been signed W, and Paul recalled that Gordon Massey had a son named William Massey, Paul had a hunch that perhaps William may be responsible for the letters, that maybe he found out about the affair, the affair that supposedly was not happening, and he wanted to put a stop to it. So, Paul wrote William a note of his own. Nothing threatening, he simply stated that he knew who he was and that he was responsible for the letters. Paul told William that if he stopped harassing the Gillespies, that no further action would be taken against him. And it seemed to work. For a while, the letter stopped, but the peace was not to last. A short while later, their mysterious antagonist doubled down. The letters resumed, and soon mysterious signs began to pop up overnight all throughout town, claiming that the Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter was also having a sexual relationship with Superintendent Gordon Massey. Every morning, Ron Gillespie would wake up early and drive around town, removing the signs so that his daughter did not have to see them on her bus ride to school in the morning. And this new development, coupled with the continued onslaught of letters alleging that his wife was having an affair, put a massive amount of strain on Ron. Soon, that strain would reach a breaking point.
On August 19, 1977, Mary Gillespie was heading to Florida with three of her friends for a couple of days, where she would, by some accounts, later be joined by Gordon Massey. Meanwhile, that night back in Circleville, her husband received a mysterious phone call. To this day, no one knows exactly who called him or what was said. But what we do know is this. Ron exchanged heated words with the unknown caller and ultimately slammed the phone down. Presumably, the caller was the mysterious Circleville letter writer, and given what happened next, it would seem that this phone call revealed to Ron the identity of the person harassing the entire town of Circleville, the person blackmailing his wife and placing signs containing horrible rumors about his daughter all over town. Ron, furious, ran upstairs, kissed his daughter goodnight, grabbed his gun, and took off in his truck. And then, a short while later, his truck was found at an intersection near his house, having crashed into a tree at a high speed. Ron Gillespie was inside, dead. Now, this is where the plot begins to thicken. Following Ron's death, an investigation was carried out, led by Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, that led to the revelation of some concerning details involving Ron's death. But the problem is that the investigation reeks of deception and half-truths. As it turns out, Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun, although at who or what remains unclear. Additionally, the post-mortem determined that Ron's blood alcohol level was well over the legal limit at the time of his death, despite the fact that those who knew him claimed he did not drink at all. And his children claimed that he was acting perfectly normal that night prior to receiving the phone call that set him off. Ron's truck was totaled and almost immediately after the accident taken to a junkyard where it was destroyed. If the unknown caller truly was the Circleville letter writer, then it would seem that they had made good on their threat to kill Ron if his wife did not disclose her relationship with Gordon Massey. In fact, very early on in the investigation, Sheriff Radcliffe allegedly admitted that there was more to the crash than meets the eye. Yet, somewhere along the lines, his story changed. Ron Gillespie's death was ruled an accident. He had been driving drunk and crashed into a tree. Yet, if his family is to be believed, it's hard to ignore some of the strange circumstances at play here. His elevated blood alcohol level was out of character and suspiciously convenient for Sheriff Radcliffe's narrative. The destruction of Ron's vehicle seemed hasty as well. It looked suspicious. And many people around town believed that Sheriff Radcliffe was not telling the whole truth. And among those people, it would seem, was the Circleville letter writer themselves. In fact, following Ron's death and its subsequent ruling as an accident, more signature block-lettered notes began appearing in mailboxes all across town. The letters were insistent, demanding that the investigation be reopened. The anonymous writer was clearly not satisfied with the conclusion and claimed that the sheriff was covering up foul play, that Ron was murdered. So on one hand, there was a spent shell in his gun, this would seem to indicate that something out of the ordinary must have happened. But on the other hand, given his blood alcohol levels and the fact that he drove into a tree, 
It's hard to imagine how Ron's death could have been anything but an unfortunate accident. And unfortunately, the cause of Ron's death never really becomes any clearer. Following her husband's death, Mary Gillespie attempted to move on with her life as best as she could. Nearly six years passed, she continued her job as a bus driver, and eventually she and Gordon Massey finally admitted to their affair, but claimed that it hadn't started until after her husband's death. Sure. For the rest of Circleville, too, life moved on, much the way that it had been. People went about their daily routines, trying to put the memories of Ron and his strange death behind them. But all the while, being bombarded by letters exposing dark secrets, or sometimes vicious, seemingly fabricated rumors. And apparently, the letter writer was not quite satisfied with Mary's acknowledgement of the affair, because she continued to be targeted as well. One rumor that continued to spread was the ongoing allegations by the writer that Mary Gillespie's daughter, too, was having a relationship with Gordon Massey. And in 1983, this rumor started to really gain momentum. Mary received letter after letter, claiming the foul rumor and threatening her for her lack of action. Day after day along her bus route, she drove past an onslaught of signs continuing to make the same claims. Until one day, around 3.30 in the afternoon on February 7th, 1983, Mary was fed up. She arrived at a particularly venomous sign along the side of the road, and she broke. She stopped her bus on the side of the road and rushed towards the sign. As she neared it, she noticed something a little odd. A string exiting the sign and tied around a nearby post. However, Mary gave this string very little thought. She ripped the sign out of the ground and returned to the bus, where she examined the sign further. Attached to the backside of the sign was a cardboard box, which the string went inside. She opened the box and made a startling discovery. Inside was a pistol, with the string tied around its trigger. It was a booby trap. Crudely made, and as it turns out, ineffective, but a booby trap nonetheless. Interestingly, Mary did not immediately notify the police of her discovery. Instead, she finished her route, went home, and about two hours later brought the booby trap and the pistol into the police station to be examined. What exactly she did with the mechanism while she was at home, the details are a little hairy on. As it turns out, the serial number on the gun had been defaced in an attempt to make the gun untraceable. But, similarly to the construction of the booby trap, it was done poorly. And when she showed up at the police station with the booby trap and the pistol, the gun was quickly traced and the owner identified. Paul Freshour, Ron's brother-in-law. Now, Paul Freshour and Sheriff Radcliffe were no strangers. 
Paul was one of the many who believed that there was more to Ron Gillespie's murder than the investigation let on, and he was vocal about it. Over the years following Ron's death, Paul put the sheriff under constant pressure to reopen the investigation, and the two had a bit of a rocky relationship. So when the booby trap was found and the pistol traced back to Paul, Sheriff Radcliffe wasted no time in calling him down to the station for questioning. On December 25, 1983, Paul Freshour joined Sheriff Radcliffe in his office, where the sheriff got right to the point. He told him that his gun was found at the scene of the crime. Therefore, he was suspected to be the Circleville letter writer, and to determine his innocence or guilt, a handwriting test would be conducted. So, the sheriff showed Paul one of the blocky font letters, and instructed him to copy it, which Paul did. And then the pair left the station and went to Paul's house so that the sheriff could take a look at where Paul kept his gun. Sure enough, when the two arrived at Paul's house and checked the garage where he stored his pistol, it was gone. Now, Paul claimed that he was robbed while he was out of town on vacation, sometime prior to the booby trap incident, and that his gun was stolen in the burglary, that he just hadn't reported it. So, things weren't looking very good for Paul. In fact, things were looking very bad for Paul. Sheriff Radcliffe was wholly convinced that not only was Paul responsible for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie, but also that he was the Circleville letter writer. Following the inspection of his garage, Sheriff Radcliffe had Paul accompany him to the courthouse, where Paul was promptly arrested and charged with attempted murder. And over the coming months, evidence would continue to pile on that made it seemingly clear that Paul was, in fact, responsible for the letters and the booby trap. A handwriting expert examined the handwriting test that Sheriff Radcliffe had conducted and confirmed that he was a match. Mary came forward and claimed that Paul's wife had told her she believed her husband may be writing the letters. And as it turns out, the day that the booby trap was found, Paul had actually taken off of work. Despite Paul's objections to the accusations, the seemingly matching handwriting, the fact that the pistol in question belonged to him, and the testimonies of Mary Gillespie and his boss, ultimately ended up being all that was needed to seal Paul Freshour's fate. It was decided that he was the letter writer, and therefore, he was the one who set up the booby trap. So Paul was convicted of attempted murder and given a sentence of 7 to 25 years. Now, you may be thinking that some of this sounds like pretty tenuous evidence to justify a conviction of attempted murder. Well, as it turns out, it just might have been. Paul did his time, serving 10 years in prison in Lima, Ohio, and all the while the mysterious letters never stopped. People all throughout Circleville continued to receive the letters. Public officials, businesses, and individuals were all threatened by the anonymous writer. Even Paul Freshour received letters while in prison, mocking his predicament. Now, when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of here? One asked. Paul Freshour was released from prison in 1994 and maintained his innocence until his death in 2012. In fact, he even put together a 162-page-long document that he sent to the FBI, reasserting his innocence. 
and he raised some really good points in his defense. For starters, his handwriting test. Sheriff Radcliffe conducted the test by showing him the letters, and asking him to copy them in the same block style that they were written in. So he did. And when Paul's intentionally block writing looked just like the blocky writing of the letters, it was immediately assumed that he was the writer, and then the letters were used as evidence against him in court. But I think you can see the problem here. Sheriff Radcliffe's method of obtaining the handwriting sample was wildly against protocol. It's not too terribly surprising that after intentionally copying the blocky handwriting, that Paul's writing looked similar. Additionally, he had an alibi. He was doing home repairs on the day of the booby trap incident, and he even met with a real estate agent who he claimed could attest to his innocence. Furthermore, a witness during the trial claimed to have helped Paul look for his missing gun prior to it being found in the booby trap, further evidence that he had nothing to do with it. Plus, the letters continued even while Paul was in prison, a feat that even the warden assured the parole board and Sheriff Radcliffe that Paul absolutely could not have accomplished. Paul asserted that the sheriff was corrupt, that he wanted to bolster his reputation by making an arrest in the letter-writing case, and he saw Paul as an easy opportunity to do so. To be fair, it's certainly possible that he had an accomplice on the outside continuing to send letters to make it look like Paul was innocent, and maybe his witness who helped him look for his missing gun was just part of an alibi that Paul was fabricating, and the gun was never lost at all. But let's assume for a moment that Paul Freshour is innocent, and truly had nothing to do with the letter writing, or with Ron Gillespie's murder and Mary Gillespie's attempted murder. Then who could have been behind it all? The problem with this case is that there are so many different characters involved, so many different angles to look at every event from, and so much finger-pointing that it really is impossible to come to a clear conclusion on who did what. Sheriff Radcliffe was certainly bent on pinning the blame on Paul Freshour, but as Paul suggested early on, it possibly could have been Gordon Massey's son William who started the whole thing in an attempt to out and end Mary and his father's affair. There's also talk of a co-worker of Mary's, a fellow bus driver by the name of David Longberry, who was romantically interested in Mary and may have wrote the letters as a way to get both Gordon Massey and Ron Gillespie out of the way. Paul Freshour argued that it was, in fact, Mary Gillespie who orchestrated the letters, as well as the booby trap. Perhaps the letters were a carefully orchestrated plot to get rid of her husband so that she could be with Gordon Massey. Paul also stated that there was not a single witness, aside from Mary, who had seen the booby-trapped sign, and that all she really ripped out of the ground was a normal, harmless sign. That she then went home and strapped the booby-trap to it and took it to the police station. And if you think about it, a family member of Paul Freshour 
would certainly have an easier time locating and stealing his gun. It's impossible to know exactly how many letters were sent during the 25-year rampage of the Circleville letter writer, but it's estimated to be well into the thousands, so it's even possible that there were multiple writers. On November 11, 1994, the Circleville letter writer and the murder of Ron Gillespie were featured on an episode of the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. Interestingly, Sheriff Radcliffe and Mary Gillespie both declined to take part. However, an interview with Paul Freshour was featured. Among the things revealed in this episode was an interesting piece of information uncovered by an investigative journalist by the name of Martin Yant. As part of his investigation, Yant had interviewed another bus driver who had driven past the location of the booby trap some 20 minutes or so prior to Mary. And this bus driver claimed to have seen a suspicious-looking man standing there near a yellow El Camino. The man was tall, with sandy yellow hair, and seemed to not want to be seen. He kept his back to the bus, turning as she drove past, so that the driver was never able to get a clear view of his face. Now, this man does not fit the description of Paul Freshour at all. But, Paul and his wife had recently divorced, and the man does fit the description of Karen Freshour's new boyfriend. And the man's brother just so happened to own the same type of car, a yellow El Camino. Now, reportedly, it was a bit of a messy divorce, and Karen was not particularly happy with her ex-husband. So perhaps she framed him in an effort to get revenge. By the time the Unsolved Mysteries segment aired, the letters had all but fizzled out. But there was one final letter sent. During the filming of the episode, a postcard arrived at the studio, written in familiar block letters that read, Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos will pay. The Circleville writer. Alright everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you want to keep up with what's going on with Simply Strange, you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for some very sporadic updates. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. And now we've got shirts, so check those out at simplystrangepodcast.com slash merch. If you're able to, that's another great way to support the show. And they're really cool shirts. They've got Mothman on them. You can get them in purple if you want. So what's not to love? And again, just a reminder, for the foreseeable future, new episodes are now going to be released on the last Wednesday of every month. So you've got a little bit of a break now until the next episode. But while you're desperately waiting for a new episode of Simply Strange to come out, here's another show for you to check out. The Unseen. At 
the Unseen podcast, we look at cases of missing people, unresolved investigations, and above all, we focus on UK true crime. So if you want to listen to UK cases and care about little-known stories that might have been forgotten about, then we are the podcast for you. Join me, Caprice, every Sunday as we delve into these stories. You can find the Unseen podcast anywhere you are currently listening, and I hope you can join me in discussing forgotten and unresolved cases. <laughs>